Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Still Here, Still Healing. This is Jade. So this is season two, episode four, and I'm super excited about this because I got to have a conversation with uh, Caroline, who is from Pinehouse Lake, Saskatchewan, which is a community that's close to where I grew up. And she actually attended residential school with my dad. So during this conversation, she was able to share um, her relationship with my dad growing up and and some good stories about him, which made uh, made my heart really happy and made me think about why I started this podcast to begin with. So I decided to split this episode into two different parts. Um, it was a long conversation and um, I just thought it would be easier for the listeners to maybe take a break in between both parts if they needed. So in part one, you're going to hear Caroline's story. In part two, you will hear from her son, Regan, who is a very good friend of mine, and his story as an intergenerational survivor. So here is season two, episode four, part one. Uh, good afternoon, Jade and uh, whoever else might be listening in. Um, so today is uh, a beautiful day to, what a wonderful way to share my story. And uh, my name is Caroline Rath-Nisponas and I live at Pine House Lake in Northern Saskatchewan. This is where I've been uh, raised. And uh, this is where I'll remain until. And so for job-wise, I'm employed with Sask Health Authority as a mental health social worker. And uh, that's my career right now. And um, so, yeah, um, I was raised pretty much when I talked to people about my story. Um, I always say that I was raised in two places throughout my life. Um, my family, my mom and dad, come from Pine House Lake. This is where they got married. Both parents are buried here. And so this is where I'd call home. And um, so I was raised from early childhood all the way till about, uh, I was about five years old when I first attended the Prince Albert Indian Student Residential School, it was called. Uh, prior to that, in the early school in Prince Albert, um, it, it was known as St. Albans Church uh, or St. Albans School. And um, I'm not even sure at the time whether it was considered a residential school, but I attended in 1970, I was five, and um, I first attended the Prince Albert Indian Student Residential School, it had been taken over by the city of Prince Albert, as I have understood now. So it wasn't run by uh, the church uh, so much at that time. It was already uh, the Prince Albert uh, authorities or you know, however you want to say it, they had taken over this school. And uh, what I do remember about the school is um, I just wanted to mention about people who worked at the school. There was a lot of Indigenous workers. So 
most of the people that looked after us as dorm parents in those uh, days at the residential school, most of them were very safe. All, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole many that I could consider that were dangerous to me anyway. It might be different for some of my other friends and family members. I, I'm just uh, gonna share what I know how, what I experienced. So for the most part, um, I was there from five till I was about 15. And uh, so that would have been about 1970 to about 1981 uh, that I spent time at the school. Um, so one of the things, when I tell my story, um, I shared my story to a bunch of professionals about three or four years ago at Mushka Lake. And uh, they wanted to hear my story about attending residential school. And <clears throat> so one of the things that really traps me still to this day is, or the traumas that, that stick to me to this day is, uh, I remember walking down the hill because we, we lived overlooking Pine House Lake. My dad had a beautiful little house right by the lake, you know where I'm talking about, Erigan, and there's a nice sliding hill. Mushroom would take us down sliding, and we spent a lot of happy days on that hill just having fun as kids. But I remember this day, I even remember the brown little hard-shelled suitcases that I'm not sure where Grandpa got those suitcases, but they were really small, brown-colored. And he carried those suitcases, one on each side. And uh, my older brothers and sisters were ahead of us. Um, and there was a plane, a small little plane that landed here out on the ice. and. Uh, Mushroom was taking us down to meet playing. At five, you don't realize, right? You don't realize what's happening. Nobody really takes the time, not me anyway, not in my childhood. No one really took the time to explain to me, yes, Caroline, you're going to go on this plane. This is the first time I would ever have ever been on a plane. So anyway, I, we chased my dad. I'm a twin to uh, a lady named Alice Rat. And so Alice and I, always doing everything together, just really frolicking and, uh, you know, having fun in the snow. What we were doing was trying to, Moshom would take a step and we tried to step into his footprints. You know what I mean? Just really uh, um, having fun. We got to the plane. It was a tiny little plane. And um, I, without a word, I remember it being really quiet and no one was really wanting to laugh with us and we couldn't understand, but me and auntie were just having fun. So all of a sudden my brothers and sisters started putting their suitcases in and, um, and then this pilot got, uh, came up to me and took me by my, you know, took me and lifted me and I thought it was, wow, I get to see what's inside this. I didn't even really know it was a plane. You know, like, that's, that's a little five-year-old. 
And I was curious to see what was in there. And I, I remember going into this plane and just looking around to see what was in there. And uh, Auntie Alice, uh, the pilot who was the, who was the worker at that point, uh, did the same with Auntie Alice. And um, it was my sense that we'd get off the plane that we'd be saying goodbye to Uncle John and Auntie Luza and Auntie Lala. And, and then we'd wave them goodbye. I never really knew where they were gonna go. Just that one day they'd be in my life, the next day they'd be gone for long periods of time. All of a sudden we're being strapped into the chairs. And I still remember I, I didn't mind because I thought, cool, what's this, you know? But when the plane took off is where I get traumatized. Um, when I first told my story, I remember I couldn't get through it. I just, I cried so bad. And I didn't realize how traumatic that is for a child, you know, and now, now I'll I'll get through it probably without too many years. But so I sat and they strapped me in the pilot and my brothers and sisters were trying to settle us down because we're like again we're still trying to we're still children playing and having fun, but not the understanding why they're strapping us down. And I'm looking at my dad and in my mind I'm sensing okay. Papa, take us down now. I want, I want to leave this plane now. I'm, I'm, I'm done, you know. And the doors clanged shut, and uh, Mushroom was still standing there. And I'm like, uh, what's happening? Why isn't somebody taking us out of these seat belts and taking us out of the plane? And then I heard, um, I heard Auntie Alice just screaming and yelling and crying and that's what stuck to my mind for a long time I don't remember that I yelled and screamed and shouted I just remember I looked out of the window and my dad was standing there and I'm like what is wrong with you open the door and you know take us home with you now you know and so for a long time I was stuck in traumatic mode and I had never realized it so this day now um goodbye this day now um oh goodbyes are really hard saying goodbye is really hard because for a long time I had understood it as I'm never gonna see my family again. And they're gonna take me somewhere and I'm powerless. It's, I'm getting a little bit better at that, saying goodbye and knowing that these people are gonna come back. But that's where the trauma was. And I couldn't understand it for a long time. That was the hardest thing. I think that's the hardest thing 
when I think about my uh, the residential school experience is abandonment, rejection from the family that is your mom and your dad. And, and um, I'm still really busy trying to to bind that up in myself. And uh, so every time my kids leave to go somewhere, it's like there's a sense of fear. There's always a sense of it's so hard for me to say goodbye, even if they're even if they're just going for a couple of nights somewhere. I always take it hard. So, yeah, uh, that part was really traumatic. When we got to the school, the first thing I remember is um, sterile, everything. Everything was sterile. You had this spotless, long building with lots of rooms. Um, everything was just so clean and spotless and shiny and uh, white blankets and sheets and um, nothing was out of place. Nothing was out of place. Everything had its place. And um, it took a lot of time to get used to that <laughs> because in our home, it in our home it was like nothing's in place <laughs> in my home with uh with with uh grandpa and uh so yeah i remember my first maybe week or so at the residential school i just remember just being really taking everything soaking it all and thinking wow and we had our own bunk beds and a little countertop, um, little sinks in our room. And it was so huge to a five-year-old girl, everything will seem huge, right? And um, yeah, so that's what I really clearly remember. My, do you have any questions? I was just wondering, uh, you mentioned a little bit about uh... Do you ever wonder what Mushroom, what uh, Mushroom might have been thinking, or what he might have been feeling at that time? Because you explained you're sharing a little bit about how you felt. And, um, do you ever, what do you think uh, Mushroom was thinking at that moment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in my adult years, known as a mental health social worker I know that he was probably feeling hopeless maybe um, maybe he suffered along with me because when I picture you Egan as a five year old <clears throat> when you went to school even it was hard for us when you entered kindergarten for the first time it was so hard for us, me and dad. And we just loved you and we wanted you to be safe. And we wanted to know that you were gonna be safe at the school. And um, so we, but we had each other to bounce off these emotions and these feelings. 
Mushroom was by himself. And um, he's, he had a sad look on his face, especially when he sees these two little twin girls sobbing and crying through the window of this plane. Imagine that, right? And I remember, I remember um, as the plane is taking off and then goes up into the sky, I remember looking back and he was standing there probably till the plane is out of sight, you know. And so it couldn't have been easy for him. It couldn't have been. And I've, I've come to peace with that. Um, because for many years I questioned, what's wrong with you? Open this door and come and get us. Look, Alice is crying. Why aren't you doing anything? Those are the thoughts that, you know, so I had to really come to peace with that and took a little bit of my own working through this to get through that. So, yeah. Because we were his babies. I, we were the babies. Yeah. And we were five. Like, I can't imagine Regan sending you off somewhere else to a school at five. Even when you entered kindergarten here in Pine House, we cried, you know? And so that must have been just awful for a single parent, because Mushroom was a single parent at that time already. And that's one of the reasons why he sent us to the school. Um, it was the Lac Larange Indian Band is a Treaty 6, Treaty 6 territory. All those reserves and areas uh, signed an agreement with uh, the Prince Albert, the city of Prince Albert, to host the residential school children to this certain school. And um, so they had signed an agreement, the Treaty 6 leaders. And... Um, Grandpa was given a choice of keep us at home as a single parent or send us away to the residential school where we get 24-hour care, um, good food, you know. So I'm sure he weighed the pros and the cons of it before he made his decision. And that was it. He sent us. And he saw that... Uh, and Ida, Uncle John and them, they were benefiting from going to school. So naturally he'd think, sure, yeah, I'll send the little girls there too. Hmm. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why we went. There were so many kids from all over the place. Like I remember lots from the range. I remember from like the reserves around there. Uh, I remember people, uh, kids from Sturgeon Lake. I remember kids as far as Fond du Lac and Uranium City. I remember just from all over the place, Denier Beach, uh, Pelican Narrows, like those quickly became my family. Caroline, were you, so when I'm thinking about how, because right now in Prince Albert, some of those like dorms are still standing, right? Like, are those the original? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I'm just curious, when you got there, were you able to stay with your sister or other, like, uh, siblings or family members, or what was that experience like? Um, when we got to the residential school, remember, this was winter when we left from Pine House, the first time ever. 
So I'm surmising that it was about January. You know, Christmas holidays are done. Now they're going to take everybody to the school. And um, so I remember when we all rode in these big, long yellow buses. Still to this day, when I spot that big yellow bus, I cringe, you know, because I remember we got off the plane at LaRange. Um, I don't know if you know, Regan, um, uh, there was this old hangar. I don't know if it's still there, um, but that's where we all the kids would get off. And um, we we got off there and we were led to this big long bus and no one really said a word. That's the thing. It was really quiet. It was sullen. It was uh, no one's chirp happily and you know maybe a few but not many people and uh we were just at the mercy of auntie luda and uncle john because they kind of knew what they were doing and which bus we're but we were even separated in the on the bus so uncle john and auntie luda went went on a bus the next one we were the first people to get on bus little tiny kids Five, six-year-olds, five, six, seven-year-olds, all of us got on one bus and uh, Luda and then they got on the other bus and they were teenagers. Because if I was five, I guess Auntie Luda would have only been 10. Uncle John would have only been 12, 13. So they were still really young themselves. So we'd all get on our bus and I just remember that we were separated right away. Uh, as siblings. Uncle Alec would have been the oldest. Uncle Alec would have been about 15 at that time. And uh, he immediately, he he's silent. He doesn't say anything. He didn't tell us, okay, sisters, here's what's going to happen. Here's where you're going to go. We'll meet you at the other, you know, like that. No one told us. No one. No one said a word. And so it almost felt like you were captured. I don't know if that makes sense, but you were just captured and you were at the mercy mm-hmm. and the hands of other people. And you just did what you were told because to do otherwise would be kind of scary, mm-hmm. you know? So when we got on the bus and uh, lots of kids crying on the bus, I mean, these are babies. So they're crying on the bus, they're um, they're yelling, they're shouting, crying for their mummies and daddies. And um, we're crying to me and Auntie Alice. I, from that point on for me, I, uh, I became introverted with my feelings. I kind of just swallowed my emotions and just didn't say a word. Uh, If you've ever heard the expression butter uh, like a fly on the wall, that's how I became. I was really passive. I just retreated into my own self. Auntie Alice, on the other hand, was total aggressive and outward. She let everybody know. She cried bloody murder. She let everybody know that I hate it. What are you doing like that, right? And um, this was the persona she carried forward in the next 10 years. 
that we were at the residential school. She fought. She was a rebellious one. <laughs> I became the, the good little girl, always did what I was told. Um, and uh, I, I gained a lot of favor that way. I soon learned that, hey, that's the way to get, you know, be treated well. Because when you're rebellious and angry and aggressive, no one wants to, you know. So I learned really quickly um, my persona, how I was going to carry myself in the next 10 years. And uh, that's the other thing that children develop um, is they'll decide what type of trauma response that they're going to follow, whether it's going to be fight, flight, flee. Okay, so I took on um, this. It's not even passive. It's uh, compliance. I was really compliant. I did what I was supposed to do. Uh, right away, I listened, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, so isn't that strange? No, it's yeah. like it's, you were a baby. So you were still trying to figure out your way. And mm -hmm. uh, with very little guidance, you had, you had family there, but it sounds like you were split up. We were split up no. right off the bat. We just were five-year-old little girls trying to find our way. Hmm. But we had each other. Hmm. Auntie Alice and I, we still had each other, and it's always like that. Hmm. This is us. We, like, no, I want to stay. What did she say the first or second day that we were there? They were trying to separate us even from our little rooms. Hmm. Auntie Alice, No. Did my sister know she stays here? You know, she refused for us to be separated that way, you yeah. know. So, and it's always been like that. So, yeah, but with the older brothers and sisters, Auntie Ida, Uncle John, uh, they were immediately put into what is known as intermediate norms. That's middle age. Uh, Uncle Alika say he was living in the city. Prince Albert. He was boarding out already by that time. And uh, Auntie Laura. Auntie Laura, because she was special needs and there was some cognitive disabilities that she was living with, that she was experiencing, uh, that she was going through, um, she was taken and we never got to Auntie Lola for almost the whole year. She would be taken to, I realized now that it wasn't far from uh, Prince Albert. It was a little farm area. It's called Clouston or Clouston, hmm. however way you pronounce it. But that's where Auntie Laura grew up. Hmm. And the kinsman people um, really looked after Auntie Laura. So she was provided with the services that she required at that age um, because there was a uh, lots of cognitive disabilities that she lived with, right? And yeah, so we were pretty much separated, but me and Auntie Alice, we remained two keys in a pod. Mm -hmm. <laughs> couldn't separate, couldn't separate us, yeah. With the schooling, you're there for about 10, 11 years, eh? Mm -hmm. What type of, do you remember like the conversation that took place in, in school? Or, or what was it that you were 
taught? What was it that you were? Um, mm. So we went, the first school that I attended in Prince Albert region was a little school called St. Anne. Actually, if I remember correctly, there was a tiny little trailer, a uh, couple of trailers that were put together at the right at the residential school site. And I think we started there, kindergarten, maybe grade one. But then I remember they transitioned us and now we had to go one block from the city, uh, from the, um, the parameters of the residential school. We left those parameters and we walked maybe a block and a half uh, towards, I don't know what that direction is, east, east and outside the, the safety of the school. And we attended this little school called uh, St. Anne, it was known as. Now it's an, a rink nowadays I, I, when I look at it. But anyway, that's where we attended school. We remember our grade one, grade two teacher. Her name was Mrs. LaCroix. And um, get this, Auntie Alice became a teacher with her in years to come isn't the world so small <laughs> so yeah so um that's where we attended so it was lots of not indigenous culture or anything from cree because we are fluent cree me and alice mm -hmm. uh we had to learn english and because we were twins and we didn't know how to express to people that were twins, we had little bands, stickers on each of our clothes. Every time we went somewhere, hi, my name is Alice and I'm a twin sister to Caroline. <laughs> and I had the same, hi, my name is Caroline, I'm a twin sister to Alice. So everywhere we went, they had pinned that on us. And <laughs> so we learned things like the English language, math, you know, just the, the curriculum that's, that's taught now. We didn't learn anything about Cree or, or nothing like that. It's funny you're talking about that. Whenever I meet other residential school survivors that you went to school with, yeah. they're always like, yeah, the twins. <laughs> funny story. They remember too. <laughs> Yeah, when you when we attended the residential school, you can become easily lost because there's like five six hundred children, right? Mm -hmm. And all of us all of us are vying for the adult attention because you're missing Mushroom's kisses and affection, right? And you had none when you attended the residential school, except with each other. Auntie Alice and I would hug each other and kiss each other as little girls would have it, that we'd also fight each other, right? Hmm. So we missed the affection. So we learned quickly what, how to get that affection, how to, how to get favor from adult population. So we found our talent we found we had a singing talent. And at the residential school, uh, Regan, we even had our own little fan club. We sang on the radio, CKBI. 
we say we sang we helped with the um we helped they called it for manix uh the um, the big federal prison it would be penitentiary we helped build that portion by fundraising and what we did was we sang and people would own donations and so I had a part to play in some of that mm. and Auntie Alice too so we quickly the kids quickly learn how to um, express themselves and gain some favor what kind of coping like those were the coping yeah. yeah that was the coping so um, we'd like for coping for myself, I, uh, I found my talent. I, I felt, I found that I could sing really well and people liked it. So I would do it lots. <laughs> mm -hmm. And me and auntie, uh, me and auntie would be, um, we put up on really far. They would take us to places in the city and, big audiences, uh, winter festivals, they put us on the stage and always had the same clothes. And that same sticker, hi, my name is Carolyn, <laughs> sister. So everywhere we'd go, we'd have that identification. And they'd put us on stage and we'd sing and people would, would be, you know, we realized very soon, hey, we could do something with this, you know? And so we we cap we captured on that and we did it well. The other thing for coping that I did was I uh, I read a, read a lot of books. Um I so my reading skills became really adept, like real sharp reading skills. I soon mastered the non-indigenous language. Uh, I read, I wrote lots, so I'd have a journal and I'd write lots. Oftentimes it was like wish. It was like a wish list. I wish grandpa would come and get us. Um, maybe this, maybe grandpa will come and visit us at the dorm. I would fantasize lots about how good it would be if grandpa came to came to get us and so I, I call that romanticism you know just really in your mind just romanticizing how it could be those are things that even still today kids will will take on uh, as a way of coping um certain things will still hurt my heart if i hear a train whistle that hurts. Um, little kids would cry at the sound of the train uh, deep in the night. You'd hear that whistle blowing and um, you could hear kids crying because they're missing their moms and dads, right? Um, but uh, we soon developed lots of friends, uh, cliques, rows. You know, I remember, uh, so I hope you don't mind, Jay, um, but I met your, I met your late dad yeah. at the residential school. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to bring that up actually, because um, my mom, 
had mentioned to me that, yeah, you would have known my dad at the time. And and I was actually really excited to talk to you today because I was like, oh, it's so it's going to be so cool to talk to someone that like has a shared experience with my dad or like knew my dad when he was younger. So, yeah, I, I definitely don't mind. I'm I'm excited to hear. So I'm I met um, so the bro, the the brothers and the sisters, all the boys and the girls became family to each other <clears throat> at the residential school. So you had dorms. When I first got to the school, uh, they would separate us into cottages. And Auntie Alice, because we're five and six-year-olds, we'd be separated into the little girls' grade, uh, grade kindergarten, grade two. And we'd all stay in one dorm. There was 12 rooms on each side of the hallway, I think. And so you could fit 24 people into this big long cottage I think it is I think it was yeah so anyway um, immediately you formed a bond with all the kids that are in your cottage in your dorm and uh, then you would all initially at first we'd all have to go to this big dining hall and that's where all the meals were served. But even then, you couldn't cross the table to go and sit with Auntie Vita. I couldn't. If I tried, they would. I would be reprimanded for it, and I would be disciplined. Uh, so I, I could only wave at her and smile at her, and she could only smile back and wave back to me. Um, but remember, we always had each other, me and Auntie Alice. So wherever she sat, I would sit. And wherever she went, I would go. Um, that sort of thing. And, um, and that's where I met all of the other um, brothers and sisters from the residential school. I met Jimmy Roberts. Um, we were about, I was a little older than your dad. I'm 53, I'm not sure how, you, how old your dad would have been, but um, we always had side-by-side -side dorms. There was really no, not much co-ed by the time that I attended. Prior to that, apparently they had co-ed dorms, but I don't remember any co-ed dorms when I attended. I think they had kind of just decided against it at that point. So. But we had side-by-side -side dorms, Jimmy Roberts, um, Larry Roberts, I remember all those. Uh, Christina Roberts became my one of my very best friends, still one of my very best friends today. And so we, Christina Roberts and I, me, Susie Roberts, Christina, Auntie Alice, we all just formed this sisterhood hmm. in the dorm. And we just were a clique. Right, because we lived near each other, LaRange Pine House. You know that Caroline McKenzie, I'll never forget her. Um, she was one of my very best friends. And I still remember her as my very one of my very best friends. But so we'd all play together under these lamps uh, at the at the school. We'd all play hide and seek together, Jade, me and your dad, and um, he was like my little brother, and uh, 
and he'd take after he'd look after me he part he took a particularly like to me and didn't want anybody to fight me and didn't want <laughs> he'd speak up for me you know and he was smaller than I was at that time well I I, I guess nobody was smaller than I was I was really small <laughs> but I remember Jimmy always stepping in and speaking on my behalf when somebody tried to uh, give me a hard time and so we are like brothers and sisters, and that's the form. Uh, that's the that's the friendship and brotherhood um, that we formed while we were at the residential school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm. I was really happy you shared that with me. Um, it makes me feel really happy because, like, the reason why I started this podcast was because I wanted to be able to ask my dad, like, about his experience. But he passed away when I was 16, right? And now, like, I attended university and I started uh, learning more and more about residential schools. And I had all these questions and, like, I was so curious, but I didn't have him to turn to anymore to ask. So I'm. it's really nice that you're able to kind of share a memory of him. It makes me really happy. Yes, I loved your dad right up until we were adults. We were considered, we considered each other brother and sister. That's you nice. know, everywhere I'd see him, we'd greet one another. We'd always never forget that we were, because you almost form a coalition when you're at the school, mm-hmm. right? You're like a coalition. You're like us against them almost, because you're living in this block of cottages. If you if you've ever seen the site where we were raised, you're, it's like a little parcel of land. And uh, there was no fence, but you knew where the parameters were. And if you stepped outside of those parameters, now you're like us against them. We have to protect each other. We got to keep each other safe. You know that sort of thing. So yeah, we quickly formed those friendships and and bonds uh, with each other. And uh, your dad was really good at um, sports. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what what that's what he was known for sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other child would be known for um, dancing. Another child would be known for beating. You know, so mm-hmm. each child developed or had a little bit of a skill, a talent that they would bring to uh, the residential school. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you were known at, known by, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was really cool, you mm-hmm. know? That, that was pretty cool, and, and you coped that way, you know? You, when you were going through a really hard time, you would seek somebody to... Yeah. Yeah. It also helps with... When you realize that you're not in it alone, and when That's you have right. more people surrounding you, a community, yeah. that always makes a impact on you. Yeah, yeah. I wanted and to you- uh, come back to a little bit about that coping. So, like, as an adult, I guess, what are the types of things that you've had to do to cope with some of that trauma that, like, it doesn't go away, right? Like, you carry that trauma for, for a long time, and I'm just wondering what types of things you do, you've done as an adult to kind of help you through that? Um, Okay, thank you for the question, Jade. Um, So I think one of the reasons why I attended uh, social work 
uh, was, well, first of all, I couldn't get in as a nurse. That's what I really wanted to be was a nurse. Um, so the next best thing was to be a social worker. And I think as you grow up as a child and you know those sufferings, uh, for me, anyway, I somehow wanted to, to change it so that I could give back what I didn't get as a child, almost. Um, and that helps me a lot. If I, if I see a child um, abandoned or scared, um, I, I give back that way. I, I help to, um, to help them with their own sufferings. Um, that's how I, that's how I help myself. Um, the other thing that I did was I really did some soul searching, uh, through all my years. Um, I did some soul searching. I did, I, I made peace with my past. I, uh, it just through all sorts of, uh, personal development stuff that I did along the years. And that's helped me to cope lots when you're in the social work programs you have to learn and talk a lot about yourself and you're growing up so that helped me lots um today as an adult um in this day in this day the present day um for coping um i do a lot of writing still i do i i'm actually hoping one day that I'll act, that I'll write a story about residential school and about how I grew up and um, and that'll help me with coping. Um, I started a few pages and I couldn't get far because I cried too much. So those remnants they still stay with you throughout the adult years. You still they still stay with you um, when the feelings of abandonment and rejection. Um, alienation, um, a culture, you know, all those things that were embedded into you in those 10 years that I attended. Um, I, I really work so hard to make peace and with myself. A lot of forgiving of myself, a lot of forgiving of my siblings, a lot of mending, a lot of mending uh, relationships. Um, yeah, so coping is in many forms. I walk lots on the treadmill when I start, when, when those thoughts start to come back, I walk lots. Um, I eat good food. I remind myself that I'm safe, uh, that my kids are safe, you know, those kinds of things. I, I do different things to, to help myself cope. Work keeps me busy, Jade. So I'm at work from nine o'clock all the way till six and I help people with their problems. Mm -hmm. And um, I love it when I can share my story because it talks about resilience. If I went through this and you can too, you know? And I love telling my story about the residential school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So a lot of people are still, well, a lot of survivors are still kind of stuck in that, um, that cycle of trauma and, and still struggling. I'm, I'm curious if you would have any advice for people, maybe somebody listening um, who are struggling in their healing journey. What type of advice would you give them? Uh, the advice that I would probably give people who are still suffering from the traumas is that it's okay to, to hurt. It's okay to be sad by the memories. Give yourself that permission because when we were at the residential school, we'd cry ourselves to sleep. We'd, we'd be really alone with our feelings. And there was no one to come to our bedside to, you know, to, to take us in their arms and, and whatever. So self, find some way to self-soothe yourself um, health, healthy, though. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, some of the ways that I found was um, to write, to, to just keep writing down. One of the things that I'm so grateful for, ah, I'm going to cry again, but one of the things that I'm so grateful for, Regan, is you. Um, you. You have given me permission to, to cry, to mourn, to mourn and grieve my past, only because you sit and you listen to me. One of one of the things that people really need is to be validated. That's, and when you're a residential school survivor, you were never validated as a person. Nobody had the time to listen because there were so many kids to look after. Our basic needs were the first and foremost need that they would have to look after. There was no time for a lot of affection and a lot of sitting down and telling our tragedies and whatever, right? So I just respect and appreciate people like Regan who just sit down and they listen to me. And when I cry, they're not scared. They are comfortable with it. And so find a person that you love, that you trust, and and tell your story to that person. Tell your story. There's many that went through different abuses. And uh, fortunately, Jade and Regan didn't experience any of the sexual abuses, any of the physical assaults. Uh, I didn't experience any of that. Probably because I was really like a good little girl, right? You know, that persona that I took on. Um, but I know many friends who suffered at the hands of um, sex offenders, who suffered at the hands of abusers. And some of those people are my close friends. So, yeah, and I know that they went through a lot of that crap. Um, it's okay to ask for help. Get therapy. Get therapy. I, uh, yesterday, I just talked to a counselor. I'm a mental health social worker, and I've been a mental health social worker for 20 years. If I'm not doing well, I'm going to sink the boat, you know what I mean? So it's no use for me to try and help people if I'm hurting myself. Mm. So get the help as you go, 
as you need. Get the help. In the meantime, develop healthy habits. Uh, eat right. Get enough sleep. Um, walk for exercise. Um, so, yeah, those are the kinds of advices that I can give to people. Give yourself permission to grieve and to mourn, uh, just like I did today with my dad. Um, I think that one day I will be able to tell that story without crying. One day I will. But for now, it's okay. It's all right. Uh, you know how when I saw my dad just standing there and I had to literally get some therapist help for that. Because for a long time, I, I told myself, dad didn't want us. He didn't want us. My, my dad didn't want us. He didn't save us. He didn't come to our rescue. We must not be good kids. We must not be worth saving. We must, you know, those are the things that people tell themselves. And I advise people, if you're going through things like that, get help, get some therapy, talk to a trusted friend. I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has listened to this episode. Make sure to give me a follow on Instagram at jadr with three rs 94 to stay updated with the show. If you're able to support me on coffee, my coffee account is ko-fi.com slash jaderoberts. Any of the money on that account gets poured directly back into the podcast and I appreciate all the support. Make sure to listen in to part two of this episode where I speak to Caroline's son, Regan, and he shares some stories of growing up as the child of a residential school survivor, as well as some of the amazing work that he's been doing in his communities.